0: Good evening, everybody. Welcome to class number six of Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell. Uh, Good to be back with you again this week. Um, So, okay, so I'm... um Going to be continuing in my struggle not to get further behind this week, but first, announcements, because we have something coming up tomorrow, as I told you last week, I would remind you, we have our special little bonus Mythgard Academy class session tomorrow night. Um, You may remember I said it was going to be on an episode of Doctor Who, so this is, again, this is uh, New Who Season 3, Episode 10, the episode called Blink, uh, with which I know many of you are familiar, so... Make sure you get a chance to do your homework. If you are on Netflix, uh, it is um, it is uh, it is in Netflix. So it's uh, it's listed as episode eleven in Netflix on season three. But there it is anyway. Um, so uh, I hope you. If you and oh, good Philip has the DVD. So there you go. Um, so yeah. So if you get a chance to review the episode before tomorrow night, that'll be good work. I'm going to be doing. Uh, I'm going to be showing clips like I have done before. So uh, uh, we will. Uh, 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 you know I will definitely be able to kind of catch up and remind you if it's been a while since you've seen it but uh, but I definitely want to be doing some uh, some close reading and careful thinking about that how, how that episode works um, and I'm gonna be joined at the end by some special guests Curt uh, uh, and cat from Kurt and Kats TV review who have been doing a long look at Doctor Who um, they're uh, on their podcast they're gonna be joining me for a little roundtable discussion at the end uh, which should be a lot of fun so uh, yeah Jeannie I've been uh, I'm excited to talk about the episode. I was just uh, watching it again last night and uh, and uh, am, am uh, really excited to uh, dig into it tomorrow night. So now remember, it's not at the normal time tomorrow night. It's going to be earlier. Uh, so it's tomorrow night at 7 p.m. Uh, we'll probably go until about 9 p.m. Eastern time, again, as usual. Uh, but uh, so 7 p.m. tomorrow night. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna jump into Doctor Who for one day uh, and uh, don't forget also we have on next weekend now it's getting closer um, on um, on Halloween uh, we are having our big uh, Webathon to conclude our fundraiser uh, for this year, and we're going to be doing a bunch of things. One of which uh, is going to be maybe the first session. I'm not 100 sure. We're still finalizing the schedule, uh, juggling everybody's schedules here. But uh, um, but I'm going to be doing another special one-shot Mythgard Academy class on the Father Christmas letters, Tolkien's Father Christmas letters. If you've never read the Father for the Father Christmas letters, you totally should. Uh, they're really really cool. Um so we're going to be uh we're going to be talking about um the the Father Christmas letters and um uh yeah that'll be about a 2 hour session segment of the uh webathon uh on Halloween one of the four or five different sessions we're going to be doing over the course of that day that Halloween day we're going to be doing at least at least 8 hours or so of broadcasting, I think, on Halloween Day. So uh, it'll be um, uh, it'll be a lot of fun. So I hope you will be able to join me for uh, for all or part of that. Um, and don't forget, coming up this uh, later on this week on Friday, I have uh, uh, we have the as usual the Silmarillion film project at ten a.m. on Friday morning, uh, followed by my weekly Lotro stream with reflect the burglar at 12:30 p.m eastern time uh so busy week this week uh but uh, lots of fun stuff coming up um and please do uh remember the fundraiser so we are doing our fundraising campaign for the annual fund for this year uh please do help us to kind of keep the lights on and keep keep things running here uh at uh and insignum over the course of this coming year um we have almost achieved our first goal and and uh we've uh, received some generous donations lately so actually we have to update the total on the uh web page here within the next uh oh, by, by tomorrow we should have that updated um so that's been really great. I, I, I am so grateful for the generosity of our viewers and our students and friends um, who have done so much to help to keep things running. And and I hope that you will consider giving to support what we're doing here. If you've been enjoying our programs, our free programs here over the course of the last you know year plus two years. Um, so and again, thanks again to everyone who has given so far. All right, let's get. Back to uh, Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell and see how far behind I can not get today. Last time, we were talking, uh, near the end of class last time, we were looking at black magic and white magic. and, and, And I was especially interested in the question, you know, when that issue first gets raised, that is the issue of... Uh, people pla- practicing black magic. Of course, the the, the question is, is is most pointedly raised um, about uh, Jonathan Strange's magic with the uh, the reanimation of the corpses of the dead Neapolitans uh, during the Peninsula campaign, and the phrase black magic is kind of tossed around about that. Um, and uh, we were talking about that last time, and one of my questions was to what extent is black magic really a thing, right? Um, That is to say, is there a kind of magic that is black magic versus a different kind of magic that's white magic? I mean, one of the problems here is that this kind of falls into the broader category of the ignorance that we as readers retain, even to this point, right? We're, we're, We're more than halfway through the book, and yet we still do not perfectly understand what magic is and how magic works, right? Michael Tchaikovsky suggests that any magic that isn't English must be, uh, uh, must be, uh, black magic. Um, yeah, it, sometimes it almost sounds like that. Right. Um, and, but that's in a sense, Michael, that's almost my question, right? That is to say, is it a, a sort of an arbitrary or oh, Okay. Arbitrary is not the right word. Um, is it a question of, again, are are there certain kinds of magic that are black magic? Um, And can you tell the difference? Or is it merely a moral judgment, right? That is to say that if you use magic to do a particular thing, uh, to do an evil thing, a wicked thing, that that's black magic, right? Um, Whereas the same kind of magic, right, Uh, if applied in a Morally acceptable way would be considered white magic. Do you see the distinction that I'm trying to make there? Um, again, in the way that this was raised in connection with the dead Neapolitans, it it, it, it wasn't obvious to me. Um, is the you know the mere fact of you know the the sort of the, the speaking with dead people, the reanimation of corpses for the sake of uh, speaking with them and getting information, is that? Uh, um, Is that itself, is that intrinsically black magic no matter what the circumstances or what, or is it just, or is the fear, is, you know, Jonathan's fear that he's going to be condemned for practicing black magic, um, is that simply because he thinks that most people are going to find what he did revolting, and possibly evil, and so therefore they're going to call his magic black magic? Tom Hillman says, if raising the dead is black magic, then both Norrell and Strange practice it. Exactly, right? I mean, now... Of course, what happens with the dead Neapolitans is not the same thing that happens to the soon-to-be Lady Pole, of course, right? But um, but 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 yeah, I mean, the, there's if, but you could still again, if it's about the intrinsic sort of magic that's being performed, you could argue that uh, um, any of that, you know, the reanimation of the dead, right? It should, sur- surely that's all. You know, I mean, is it like necromantic magic? Is that a different thing, in a sense, and that that category of magic is black magic? Um, Anyway, so that's um, that. I think is 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 it was the kind of question, anyway, that I'm uh, that I'm interested in. Um, But uh, yeah, yeah, good, Um, yeah, good, Jordan. Sunderland points out that we don't even know how Strange and Noro are capable of doing magic. Can anybody do it? Or do you have to have a, have a high midichlorian count or what? Yeah, exactly, Jordan. I don't know. I mean, it, they do talk about a talent for magic, right? Like John Segundus, for instance, seems to, he has something uh, that that uh, the genial and delightful Mr. Honeyfoot does not have, right? Mr. Honeyfoot, great guy, uh, great scholar, uh, very intelligent, very thoughtful, but no magician, right? And we can see this, by the way, and say, again, Jordan, I don't know if it's the Midichlorians or what, but we, we can tell from um, when they go to Mr. Norrell's house. Remember, we were noticing this way back when we were reading, what, like, Chapter 2 or Chapter 3. Um, when they first go to Mr. Norrell's house, and Mr. Segundus perceives that something is going on. He doesn't understand it, right? He doesn't get it. But he he can tell when they're escorted into the library, something whereas mr. Honeyfoot is just completely blithely unaware that anything is going on right and we can see the same thing again when mr. Honeyfoot and John Segundus uh, come to I'm already forgetting the name of it that that ruined house um, th- uh, where uh, he, Segundus fell asleep and had that dream and in the dream met Jonathan strange remember that at the beginning of uh, of part two I believe um, so uh, I, so there does seem to be something Jordan intrinsic. Um, some kind of gift or talent that Segundus has that honeyfoot does not um, so that seems to be demonstrable in those in that case and and the two of them paired together um, seem almost sort of designed to uh, kind of show us that I think um, but um, uh, but yeah uh, back to the um, back to the back to the black magic. Um, Uh, question. Rachel Draper asks a great question. Does the use of blood in this instance make it black magic? Uh, An excellent question. Rachel, of course, you remember at the end uh, if you were here, you remember at the end of class last time we were talking about the it's not just, not only the usage of blood, but the usage of blood in that kind of what looks to speak about it in the most neutral possible way blood being used in a ritual which could at least be mistaken for a kind of mockery or perversion of a christian sacrament right uh, and remember we remember we're talking about that last time how it's kind of like kind of like last rites kind of like communion kind of like baptism none of the three right and yet very much none of the three um certainly Perhaps uh, you know Jonathan Strange, of course. In tonight's reading, was talking about the uh, the sort of traditional, if not inherent, uh, sort of uh, conflict between um, between clergymen and magicians. Um, certainly, uh, one suspects that. Um, uh, Mr. Woodhope, uh, his brother-in-law, Strange's brother-in-law, would probably be discomfited at the least were he to see Jonathan Strange uh, were he to have seen Jonathan Strange performing that particular piece of magic. But see, Rachel, that would suggest again that that kind of ma- again, that's clearly black magic, demonstrably black magic, right? No matter what how, what motivation you do it for, undertaking that kind of ritual is obviously bad, right? That would, that does seem to su- or at least to open up that uh, uh, that uh, that possibility. Um, but anyway, going back to uh point that... Oh yeah, Tom Hillman asks uh, the excellent question. He said, would killing someone uh, with magic be black magic as well as ungentlemanly? Um, and that's, Tom, exactly what I was thinking. I mean, ultimately, it sounds like sort of the other model, right, yeah, of what black magic could mean would be... Exactly as Jonathan Strange articulates it in that case to, uh, to the Duke of Wellington, right? That is to say, um, a magician might kill a man by magic, but a gentleman never could. The implication there is, it's not that particular act of magic that is intrinsically evil, but it is ungentlemanly, right? That is to say, it would be wrong to do that. Um, I, I feel comfortable expanding a gentleman never could uh, to that sort of appeal to to morality, right? That um, it would be wrong. No man could call himself a gentleman and act in that way anymore. I mean, think about the way that. Well, anyway, I don't want to get too sidetracked on sidetracked on gentlemanliness, but um, but again, the implication there seems to me again not. A gentleman would never perform that sort of magic, but rather, a gentleman would never act that way by magic, just as a gentleman would never act in that way by any other means at his disposal. Um, so, um... Yeah, yeah. Let's, uh... Having indulged in a uh, uh, rather long preamble, um, let us... uh, Uh, Well, hang on a second. I see you guys keep making these really good points, though. Um, uh, Nancy Fosberg says, except duels, apparently, right? That uh, apparently duels would be an exception in which gentlemen are perfectly willing uh, to kill each other. But see, Nancy, I actually think that that's sort of... that demonstrates the rule rather than undermining it. Um, That is the circumstance in which a gentleman might kill someone else. Now, notice, gentlemen can kill one another in battle, Right? There's not a problem with that. Um, You can take your musket and fire it off or your pistols um, and shoot somebody in the head um, on the field of battle. That's perfectly gentlemanly. But to kill somebody by magic is not gentlemanly. A duel, of course, is a gentlemanly way, the ultimately gentlemanly way to kill somebody because it's... Exactly. As Carita says, it's on an equal footing. Uh, Chris Wank says it's face-to-face. Yeah, and the equality is what I would really emphasize there. It's fair, right? Fair play. You each get a shot, uh, you each have an equal chance of killing each other, and you are standing your own chance of being shot in the head, just as the other man is uh, is standing his chance of being shot in the head. So that's how a gentleman uh, would kill someone, right? But for Jonathan Strange... To kill by magic someone who has no magic and in that sense no ability to defend himself, right? It's not gentlemanly. It's not equal. You're not. It's not two gentlemen facing one another with pistols or with uh, or with sabers. Um, Philip Lord, it is a question of of, of fairness, absolutely. Um, so, uh, uh, so yeah. So in in that sense, it would be. Ungentlemanly, but again, more than ungentlemanly, immoral to take advantage of someone and uh, and just get so. If one gentleman shoots another in a duel, according to the law, you're guilty of murder, but no man of honor would consider you a murderer. Right. This was, a, this was a, an interesting point throughout the 18th century and into the 19th century. Um, uh, the government uh, was trying to, to, uh, to reduce the number of duels, fought dueling was very popular, um, but, uh, but it was strictly against the law. Um, and you can see this through, again, 18th and 19th century uh, literature, you can see this a lot. If you do fight a duel and someone is killed in the duel, the winner almost always has to flee the country right away because they are guilty. They could be hanged, in theory, uh, more than in theory. Um, Legally, that's the consequence. They would be considered a murderer, and they would be hanged uh, for their crime. So this is why fighting in a duel, though of course it is like what Men of Honor would do, it's also pretty much catastrophic. Like, if you lose you're dead if you win you're exiled essentially you have to flee the country and you really probably can't return because uh you will be tried for murder if you do return so again in the eyes of the law it's murder um but um but certainly other gentlemen of honor would not consider it murder and you would not be considered a uh, it w- wouldn't be as if you had just taken advantage of somebody and killed them in an unfair fight right um as, of course, would be happening if you kill them by murder. Um, So, I... Okay. So, let's see... Oh, yeah. My first passage! That's what I was... I'm like, there was something I was going to do. Yeah, yeah, that's what it was. Let's gather some more... Let's gather some more more data here. Okay, this is... uh, On the one hand, this is... I find this passage fascinating because it is the most objective evidence we get. In fact, you could argue it's the most objective evidence we could possibly ask for, right? Here is the code, the formal law code about magic, right? This is, you know, the discussion of the Sink Dragoons. Um, And uh, by the way, uh, if you're tempted to sort of read it uh, in a sort of a more, at least the first word, in a more... uh, correctly French way uh, don't uh, the English in especially in the 18th and 19th century are, are sort of flamboyant especially because the French are the enemy right um, they have but they have so many French words and even incorporate directly so many French words uh, into their speech and in their place names and things like that um, but they become aggressively English in their pronunciation Um so you would almost uh, you would almost always pronounce these words um in a in a sort of a purely english way so sink is certainly how that first word would be pronounced uh, crimes tried by the sink dragoons included evil tendings magic with an inherently malevolent purpose false magic pretending to do magic or promising to do magic which one either could not or did not intend to do Selling magic rings, hats, shoes, coats, belts, shovels, beans, musical instruments, etc., etc., to people who could not be expected to control these powerful articles, pretending to be a magician or pretending to act on behalf of a a magician, teaching magic to unsuitable persons, e.g., drunkards, madmen, children, persons of vicious habits and inclinations, and many other magical crimes committed by trained magicians against other Christians. Crimes against the person of John Usglas were also tried by the Sink, by the Sink Dragoons. The only category of magical crimes with which the Sinc Dragoons had nothing to do was crimes by fairies. These were dealt with by the separate court of Falfleurs. Okay. So what do we see here? What do you notice? What observations do you make about again, here we have this is this is like Magic that's against the law, right? So if if there's any place to which we could appeal to say, okay, could you please provide us an objective definition of what counts as black magic? Here it is, right? And what do we see? Well, uh, evil tendings. Magic with an inherently malevolent purpose. That is one thing that I take from this list is that there does not seem to be any such thing as a particular kind or sort of magic which is intrinsically evil in its essence, in its nature, in its operation. Right? Um, The malevolent purpose behind magic, that's what makes it an evil tending. Right? Even tending shows it's the tending of the magician. Right? Of the magic that he's doing. Not of the magic in itself. Right? Um... Okay. Notice the same thing as seems to be applied to the question of selling magic rings, hats, shoes, coats, etc. Right? It's not that any one of those things is evil. There's not a question of like. uh, Notice it's not listed as being explicitly against the Sink Dragoons to make a magical artifact that does something wicked or harmful mean, right? Like a a pair of slippers, which once you put them on, compel you to dance incessantly until you die. Just throw out a random example um, from folk tradition. So that's, it doesn't say anything like that, right? It doesn't say like, which spells are and are not lawful to, you know, to enchant a magical item with. No, the law is against selling them to people who could not be expected to control these powerful articles. Again, it's about how the magic is going to be applied, and in this case the magician who is distributing the magical item has responsibility, right? Because if the person to whom he's selling them cannot possibly be expected to control it, what evil is done with it is on him, or at least he's responsible for having done so. Um... So yeah, Rachel, I absolutely agree. Uh, Rachel Draper says there seems to be a lot of subjectivity um, to the crimes. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Now, John Moline says, "Wouldn't endless dancing shoes have an inherently malevolent purpose?" Yeah, probably. Uh, I mean, sure, you could, you could. But again, the point would be, it's not like these particular kinds of spells. Or you know, again, it's 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 all about the intentions of the magician, and therefore, Rachel, as you say, it is, um, um, it's subjective. Right? It's and, and by subjective, I don't necessarily mean anybody can make it mean anything they want it to mean, but what I do mean is that it's subject to external standards of morality. Right? You have to be in general agreement about what a an inherently malevolent purpose is. Right? Um, so that's one interesting thing that I would um, that I would point to. Now, second thing, um, there are some other elements of this code which I find particularly interesting. Um, teaching magic to unsuitable persons. If you think. Uh, 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 you know, Sarah King is saying, you know, how on earth do they figure out if the purpose was malevolent? Because um, you're right, Sarah. It's not the effect, it's the purpose, right? Oh, actually, gosh, I know. I created those, uh, you know, uh, dance you to death shoes for a perfectly good reason. Or even, Sarah, you could try to get off on a loophole, right? Uh, it may have been a malevolent purpose, but it wasn't an inherently malevolent purpose, right? Um but, um, but anyway, it's, it's, uh, it seems like you could, um, you could get, it's subjective. It clearly is subjective. Um, but again, teaching magic to unsuitable persons. Yeah, Nancy, boy, Mr. Norrell would love that particular bit, wouldn't he? Right? Um. What does Mr. Norrell have in his pocket when he goes to his first interview with Sir Walter Pole? You remember, the first time he meets uh, Miss Wintertown when she's still sick and she's, you know, being terminally ill over in the corner, right? What does he have in his pocket? Remember, what he's he's brought something with him. He's got a paper. What's 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 he what's he brought with him? You recall what he brings, his, he, he, he comes equipped with documents which he hopes to be able to show to. to, to exactly, John and Sarah Lagarde. Uh, lists of regulations for magic, right? Laws, rules, exactly like this, right? For how magic ought to be regulated, right? And remember, we've been focusing on how very unattractive. This makes Mister Norrell to be right. How exclusive he wishes to be! How he tries to prevent everybody else from practicing magic. He's always emphasizing, so he's criticizing everybody who claims to be a magician, preventing everybody that he possibly can from doing any magic, hoarding all the books for himself to make sure that nobody could possibly read them or gasp, attempt spells themselves. Right, and yet, notice, John Usglass did the same thing. Right? John Osgoas also cared about teaching magic to unsuitable persons. Um, Tom says, but magic is dangerous in the wrong hands. Exactly. Just what Mr. Noro would say, right? It is. Absolutely it is. You wouldn't want drunkards, madmen, children's, children, children's, children, um, women, of course, as Mr. Norrell would add, uh, persons of vicious habits and inclinations. You wouldn't want, well, any of those really practicing magic, right? Who would? If Jonas Goss is right to say that? Is Mr. Norrell right to say that? And what's more, remember the conversation, th- This in the context of this whole, this listing of the crimes tried by the Sink Dragoons, um, remember the context of this in this chapter, how Mr. Norrell is going to the Prime Minister and trying to get him to reinstate the Sink Dragoons, right? To reinstate the court, um, uh, the judicial court for magic, for magical crimes, specifically. And remember how that conversation ends, you know, ends up where it ends up going, right? With uh, the prime minister refusing and Mr. Norrell saying flat out, like unshamefacedly, "How then shall I be secure against other people? Right? Against other people's opinions? Maybe? How can? How, how else could I possibly enforce everybody to do what I want them to do? Right?" Um. And, of course, the Prime Minister has no sympathy with this at all, right? He says that that's not the English way. You cannot, in fact, ask the English government to set up an entire judicial code designed for no other reason than to protect you personally and make sure that nobody disagrees with your opinions, right? Um, That's, in fact, not reasonable. and uh, But notice, crimes against the person of John Uskoas were also tried by the Sink Dragoons. Right? That is to say, it's not the same thing, I know, but but I find it fascinating that in addition to the um, uh, Teaching Magic to Unsuitable Persons clause, just as Mr. Norrell wanted the Sink Dragoons established essentially in order to protect him, to guard his own views, and himself, you know, to be essentially the legal enforcement of himself and his own, the protection of his own magicianship, so John Uscloss used the Sink Dragoons um, as the special judicial protection of himself, of his own person, right? Um, To disagree with Mr. Norrell, um, and to to act against, to undermine Mr. Norrell, as as Drawlight has done, right? Um, Drawlight is plainly guilty, Right, I mean, he clearly uh, promised to do magic, uh, pretended to do magic, or promising to do magic, which which either one could not or did not intend to do. You could say he's or you know pretending to act on behalf of a magician, obviously guilty there. Um, but um, uh, yeah, anyway, my point is merely um, there's a kind of a parallel here, which I find. Really, kind of interesting, right? Just simply that the not that not, not that they're the same, but that the Raven Kings' rules sound kind of like somebody we know, right? Uh, you know, sound kind of like Mister Norrell. I find, I find interesting. Anyway, um, and in the context of this whole segment of the book, um. I think, it, remember we were looking at last time how very unattractive Mr. Norrell was looking, right? Um, when Mr. Strange is off in the peninsula fighting with Wellington, and Mr. Norrell is at home outbidding Strange's wife, you know, outbidding poor Arabella uh, for all the books that come up on the book sale and all that kind of thing. Um, and everyone is finding his miserly uh, tendencies uh, to be extremely... Um, you know, to be uncivic-minded and and, uh, and 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 deeply unattractive, his sort of his stock is falling. Not only with the with the British public, um, but with the readers, I think as well. I think Mr. Norrell looks really bad um, there. We get after Strange's return, we do get uh, several moments, and one I think crucially important moment of if not recuperation, at least recontextualization of Mr. Norrell's character. Um, this moment, I thought, was really interesting. This is from the footnote describing the portrait that Norrell and Strange sat for, um, and uh, giving, of course, this uh, sort of long, prosy narration about uh, what happened, you know, what the experience of, of uh, them sitting together was like, and Mr. Norrell's paranoia about the about the, the 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 painter, remember how he uh, how Jonathan Strange confesses to the painter that the reason Mr. Norrell had always wanted uh, Strange to get up and go over to where he could see what the painter was doing was that he was paranoid that the painter was over there copying spells uh, behind his easel where uh, where Mr. Norrell couldn't see. Um, Here's Mr. Strange's response to the uh, artist who is understandably offended at uh, being essentially accused of stealing um, by Mr. Norrell. Come, said Mr. Strange gently, do not be angry. If any man in England deserves our patience, it is Mr. Norrell. All the future of English magic is on his shoulders, and I assure you he feels it very keenly. It makes him a little eccentric. What would be your sensations, I wonder, Mr. Lawrence, if you woke one morning and found yourself the only artist in Europe? Would not you feel a little lonely? Would you, would you not feel the watchful gaze of Michelangelo and Raphael and Rembrandt and all the rest of them upon you, as if they both defied and implored you to equal their achievements? Would you not sometimes be out of spirits and out of temper? This is very generous on behalf of Mr. Strange, right? Um, and you can see the... Um, you can see the generosity, right? That is to say, he, Mister Norrell, has been was in fact behaving unhandsomely, in fact, even ungentlemanly, in fact, through his uh, uh, his rather base suspicion uh, of the artist, uh, you know, against whom he had no reason to suspect that kind of dishonesty. Um, uh, yeah, Jeannie says, it surprised me how sincerely Mr. Strange came to Norrell's defense after all his miserliness. Agreed, Jeannie, and even the particular arguments he make, I find especially interesting, right? All the future of English magic is on his shoulders, and I assure you, he feels it very keenly. Now, it seems to me doubtful that Strange actually believes this. I mean, fully, really, is just speaking his honest feeling here. I, I, I doubt that. I don't think that Strange really believes that all the future of English magic is on Norrell's shoulders. He knows that at least 50% of it is on his own shoulders as well. But um, but the fact that he is so generous in his characterization, right? The fact that he will not only excuse Mr. Norrell, but excuse Mr. Norrell in this way, is, uh, is not only, I think... Um, very, um, um, not only a sort of a very attractive move by Strange, um, but again, it shows he's very sort of thoughtfully defending Mr. Norrell in exactly the way in which Mr. Norrell would wish to be, uh, to be defended. Now, but, but things like this, you know, Mr. Strange wants us to make allowances for Mr. Norrell in this way. I know that I, as a reader, um, Am I? Um, uh, I know that I, as a reader, am a little bit unwilling to go along with Mister Strange here, right? You know, he says we we we, uh, you know, we must make allowances, and I'm like, mm, no, no, I don't, I don't think it really, I, uh, I don't think this is what made him a little eccentric, and I don't think that his behavior can be properly described merely as a little eccentric. Um, But then we get what I think, anyway, is Mr. Norrell's greatest moment. This is uh, his part in the confrontation with Jonathan Strange after uh, Strange has written the review, right? After he has now attacked Mr. Norrell's views and Mr. Norrell himself in print, right? This betrayal by Jonathan Strange. All, all is to be done in public, sighed Mr. Norrell. He leaned forward and said with more energy, be guided by me. Um, I'm going to pause for a second before I finish reading the passage. Because first we should remember the part that came before. I, of course, was tempted to be like, let's read the whole thing. Uh, it's long. I didn't want to read the whole thing. But remember, before this passage, um, we have him making his own admissions, almost confessions, about the Raven King. Remember that? About how he, when he was young, wanted nothing more. His, his open recognition, of course it's the Raven King's magic that we do, right? Um, he is not delusional at all. He knows that that's what English magic really is. Um, why is it then that he opposes the Raven King as he does? I mean, it it has sounded on many occasions as if he simply wanted to he wanted everybody forget to forget about the raven king because as long as everyone considered the raven king the fountain of english magic then we're going to pay enough attention to norrell right he wants to displace the raven king completely displace and make everybody forget the raven king right um he wants to tear down every statue of the raven king and, and erect a statue of mr norrell in its place it sounds like that right um through long sections um, of the opening half of this book. But in this scene, we see he admits that's not his relationship with the Raven King. That's not what he thinks about the Raven King. Um, We've seen him be reasonable about the Raven King before. Remember the point that he made when he was defending his anti-fairy magic stance? And he made the point about the politics of the Raven King, right? How he believed that the Raven King's Um, spotlighting of the use of fairy magic uh, of the role of fairies in English magic was a political move on the Raven King's part because he was ruling fairies and humans both and he wanted to bring them together and sort of make them get along um, make them dependent upon each other so that he would have peace between his two kingdoms and whether or not we fully accepted that it at least is a very interesting and rational argument to what sounded like mere prejudice, right? When he, the first times we hear him talk about it, it sounds like he's merely bigoted against it. He doesn't, that he finds the Raven King distasteful. It's not his style. It's not respectable, right? Um, too vincuous ish right? So he, he, he wants to distance. It sounds like he's merely snooty, right? But he's not snooty. We already saw that. Again, we saw these glimpses that there's actually a rational foundation to his objection. And here, I, I think we see it even more right um why why does he want modern magic to forget the raven king because it's the only way modern magic can happen right he points it before he pointed out in again in, the, in that other scene where he was being rational in his objections to the raven king he says notice the very first, what is the very first thing the raven king does when he arrives in england conquers half the kingdom and takes it away from its from its uh, from its proper sovereign right from the king of england at the time um so you know, in other words, like you can tell that he is questionable because he's an imperial oh wait, we're okay with imperialism in nineteenth century England. <laughs> never mind. that's okay. perhaps not a sufficient argument uh, on its own. Um, but anyway, he 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 goes there, right here, um, we see him say it's not just that he came and conquered his big his big problem, right he was exactly Philip, a, a usurper, the biggest problem. It's not that he came and usurped a throne? It's that he left, right? It's that he abandoned, he betrayed. Did he found English magic? Yes, of course he founded English magic, but that's not the problem, right? The problem is not that Mister uh, Norrell sees the Raven King as a rival in that sense. He wants to be the second founder, the real founder, the founder of modern magic, as much as that, right? It's the problem with the Raven King is not that he founded English magic, or it's that he abandoned it that he abandoned England and took the magic with him. He emphasizes it's well known. This magic stopped working when John Usglas, for whatever reason he did, left England and abandoned it. And abandoned us, the English, abandoned the magicians, right? He is the one who destroyed English magic. Yeah, he brought it, but he also took it away again. And that is what Mr. Norrell says he can't forgive him for, right? And so we see this parallel with his own youth, right? How he too was obsessed with the Raven King and wanted more than anything else for the Raven King to come back. But he now, as an older and wiser man, recognizes the Raven King isn't coming back. And you know what? Even if he did come back, we couldn't rely on him because he abandoned us in the first place. Why would we want him back? Right No, instead, the best thing that we can do for English magic, the best thing we can do for modern magic is to establish a totally raven King free magic because that magic doesn't depend upon the whims of a despot and usurper who might just pack up and leave again any other time, right So notice Jonathan, strange's impulse, right now that we've advanced so much in magic, you should try again, right? I know okay, you said you tried and failed. To summon him, and, or to, to reach out to him. Let's try again, maybe we'll succeed, right? And Mr. Norrell says, no, no, you're not getting it, right? He doesn't even want, even if they could succeed, he wouldn't want to succeed. Because, again, John Osglass is unreliable, has shown himself to be unreliable. Therefore, modern English magic must be put on a more secure footing than it would be if we just kept going back to the Raven King. And all of a sudden, now, all of those things which seemed merely bigoted, merely self-aggrandizing, merely, now are all put into a totally different context. Right? I'm not saying that it has to necessarily make you see like, oh, I now totally, I'm my heart is with Mr. Norrell all the way through now, in retrospect. It's not like that, necessarily. Um, but, um, but there's more to it, right? And Janice, I agree with you. Janice Hopper points out that, of course, there's the personal dynamic there, too, right? Not just his sort of political assessment of the Raven King. Um, but um, Janice points out that he's also lonely and disappointed. The Raven King didn't come to him. Strange is leaving him. You know, he's, he says that he's neurotic and OCD, but he wants someone to share magic with, too. Um, he's he's really more tragic and sad than despicable. Um Yeah, yeah. Now, John, you're absolutely right, John Molina's, you're absolutely right to point out that modern magic, of course, is hardly 100% Raven King free. Um, uh, Strange is not convinced, and and no, absolutely not. Um, It's not Raven King free. Um, And there's... Well, we'll come back to this a little bit later on, but especially with Strange, there's a question of is all of that old magic really defunct? Right? Um, anyway. Um, we'll see. But eh, John wants to say that it's false to pretend that the Raven King's magic doesn't work anymore. I don't think Noro is pretending. I don't think he is pretending. His magic is based on books on what he has read. He has not gotten the Raven King's magic to work. Strange does get it to work. But Norrell doesn't really do it, um. Not the same way. Anyway, um, we'll of course keep following following this and keep thinking about this. But that's the, so. That's item number one. Again, I wished to quote them both, but I didn't have time. So we see first off that. You know, the the first kind of shocking revelation that comes out of this conversation between Norrell and Strange after Strange has openly, publicly, um, uh, unprovokedly, really... Um, okay, well, not quite unprovokedly, but anyway, unexpectedly um, stabbed Mr. Norrell in the back in the press, right? Um, that's the first thing that comes out, is the unexpectedly reasonable argument against the Raven King by Noral. And here's the second thing, which is the personal appeal to Strange. Be guided by me. Promise me that you will publish nothing, speak nothing, do nothing until you are quite decided upon these matters. Notice, I didn't even think that's where that sentence was going to go. Promise me that you will publish nothing, speak nothing, do nothing until I give you my approval, right? You have consulted with me on these matters, right? That's where I thought that sentence was going when I first read it. But no, until you are quite decided upon these matters. Don't be hasty, is all he's saying. Believe me when I tell you that ten, twenty, even fifty years of silence is worth the satisfaction of knowing at the end that you have said what you ought, no more, no less. Why is Mr. Norrell so secretive? Well, he's a miser and all those other things we've seen, and it's not that I'm attempting to exonerate him from any of those other things, but notice he provides a new context. Right? Why does he never publish anything of his own? Why does he hoard all of the information and never never give any of it? Because he can't be sure that he has said what he ought. No more, no less. Um, It is exactly John Perfectionism more than corruption, necessarily. Um, John Molina is suggesting he's the ultimate perfectionist, right? It's that what, what, what he has just said right there, um, 10, 20, even 50 years of silence is worth the satisfaction. It's like he, say, he calls that the perfectionist credo. Um, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, silence and inaction will not suit you. I know that. But I promise to make what amends I can. You will not lose by it. If you have ever had cause to consider me ungrateful, you shall not find me so in future. I shall tell everyone how highly I prize you. We shall no longer be tutor and pupil. Let it be a partnership of equals. Have I not in any case learnt almost as much from you as you have from me? The most lucrative business shall shall all be yours. The books... "'He swallowed slightly. "'The books which I ought to have lent you "'and which I have kept from you, "'you shall read them. "'We will go to Yorkshire, "'you and I together, "'tonight if you wish it, "'and I will give you the key to the library, "'and you shall read whatever you desire. "'I—' Mr. Norrell passed his hand across his brow, "'as if in surprise at his own words. "'I shall not even ask for a retraction of the review. "'Let it stand. "'Let it stand. "'And in time, you and I, together—' will answer all the questions you raise in it. This, I think, is absolutely remarkable. Um, the personal generosity that he should... I mean, again, we have to put this in its context. Remember how we've been built up for this, right? Remember that Mr. Norrell seems to have feared nothing more than a rival... Right. his greatest fear seems to have been that some other magician would arise to dispute his unilateral sway over all of English magic. He has spent his life before we met him right before the book starts. He has already spent decades of his life uh aggressively acquiring and hoarding for himself every other work of English magic so that nobody else could possibly read them. And remember this was explicitly articulated. Why did he do that? What was his What was his reason behind it? Remember this was explicitly articulated in his anxiety about Mr. Strange bringing 40 of his books to the peninsula? What was he afraid of? That they might get damaged or dusty? Yes, yes, he was worried about that just because he was paranoid, but um, and, and, and OCD and perfectionist and, uh, and, and didn't want his books damaged. I think most of us can understand that. But remember, what he, the horror of horrors, said with some sarcasm, uh, or, yeah, I I think sarcasm, um, by the narrator, was that uh, somebody might read the spells and try to do them right this is that's 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 his greatest fear. uh Childermus has gone around and he now has these like deputies out there who are going around trying to find and quash any potential magician anywhere. uh Childemus th- remembers all of the the you know the pernicious bargain you know the pernicious agreements that he's made other magicians like the Society of York magicians at the beginning um, uh, uh, sign. he has spent his life doing this, and, and even when Jonathan Strange is introduced right when LaSalle's Says, or was it Drawlight? One of them, anyway. Who says? Well, you seem to have a rival, right? And he's like, oh, No, a rival! It's the worst thing. Remember when he meets Drawlight? His first concern is not like, is this guy a complete con artist and a scoundrel? No, his first question is, is he the agent of a, of another magician? And as soon as he as soon as he's convinced that uh, that uh, Drawlight is clearly not the agent of another magician, he doesn't care about anything else, right? And yet, and yet, here we see him voluntarily agreeing, imploring strange to agree to be everything that he appeared to fear most right? i will i will I will call you my equal I will, and he's going to give him the key to his library. There is nothing more, literally nothing more on earth. Uh, if Mr. Norrell were offering him his lifeblood in a jar, it wouldn't be harder than that, obviously, right? Um, He, in this moment when it would seem that his worst fear has been realized, and again, it's about the context, right? You know, it's worse, had Jonathan Strange simply been a rival and things gotten really ugly from day one, as it looked like they almost were, right? But had that happened, that would have been better. That would have been easier than what has happened. Instead, he has, you know, nurtured a, 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 a serpent in his own bosom. Right? And now, Jonathan Strange is published against him and stabbed him in the back. He fully expects Norrell to be com- just enraged. Right? Not only is Mr. Norrell not enraged at Strange's active declaration of himself as a rival, he is compassionate, he is understanding. He is generous. He is self-effacing. He is self-sacrificing in the highest degrees. It's amazing. It's amazing. Um, and uh, I, it, we got a glimpse of this. We were not, we shouldn't anyway, have been wholly unprepared for this. We saw a glimpse of sort of a foretaste of this in the unexpected, remarkably generous way in which he responds to Jonathan Strange when he first sees him do magic. right? This moment, which should have been the culmination of all of his worst nightmares, instead he is delighted and embraces him. Right? We've already seen that element of Mr. Norrell's character, and here it comes out most strongly, uh, more strongly than it ever does. Um, Mr. Norrell's character is never going to look more attractive than it does, I think, at this particular moment. Um, But I think it's a really important moment for context to remember um, because it can also help us, I think it should help us, to contextualize and understand. Just as his explanation here of his animosity towards the Raven King retroactively, I think, really changes, or should change, our view of the way in which Norrell has spoken about... um, uh, has spoken about the Raven King. So too, this moment, this effusive moment, should I think inform not only go back and, and perhaps invite us to reevaluate um, what we've seen of Mr. Norrell so far, but also to keep it in mind when we when we judge his future actions. And remember, he's going off the script. He's not just off the script. He's completely, uh, completely out in left field. Remember, Lascelles had a plan, right? Lascelles has been coaching him what he should do. He remember he was supposed to be making an ultimatum of Strange, and he was... Uh, you know, LaSalle's had a script that Norrell was supposed to follow, and we see that Norrell has utterly, completely abandoned the script. Um, okay, so... But let's think about Strange for a second. Um, what do we... Um, What do we see about Strange? Again, are there ways in which we are sort of invited also to kind of recontextualize Strange, in a sense? Um, let's, uh, Let's look at a few passages there. This is Strange looking at the portrait, right? And the thing he's most interested in is the way the mirror is depicted in the portrait. Hmm? Said Strange. "'Oh, it is not that. It is the mirror. "'Does it not look as if one could just walk into it? "'It would not be so difficult as I think. "'One could use a spell of revelation. "'No, of unravelling. Or perhaps both. "'The way would become clear before one. "'One step forward and away,' he looked around him and said, "'and there are days when I would be away.' where sir walter was surprised there was no place he found so much to his liking as london with its gaslights and its shops its coffee houses and clubs its thousand pretty women and its thousand varieties of gossip and he imagined it must be the same for everyone oh wherever men of my sort used to go long ago wandering on paths that other men have not seen behind the sky on the other side of the rain Strange sighed again, and his right foot tapped impatiently on Mr. Norrell's carpet, suggesting that, if he did not make up his mind soon to go to the Forgotten Paths, then his feet would carry him there of their own accord. What do we see about Strange here? What motivates Strange? What's the difference between Strange's perspective and Norrell's perspective? Yeah, John, Strange is like an explorer, like an adventurer. He compares himself to an explorer, of course, in his argument with Arabella, right? Um, That's different, right? Uh, If both of them are sort of rediscovering English magic, Mr. Norrell sees himself as sort of a lawgiver, right? Whereas Strange sees himself as an explorer. It's a very different kind of character, right? Good, Philip Lord says behind the sky, the on the other side of the rain. So he's a romantic. Yeah, yeah. Um and again, Philip, I can't help but remember the distinction between that one army captain who had that romantic idea of the Raven King riding into battle, and Lord Wellington, who merely comes to Strange and says, Can you make my bullets fly faster? I don't think so. Right? Um you know, initially anyway, Wellington is completely unromantic in his view of uh, of magic. Um Yeah, yeah. Um interesting. Janice Hopper says strange looks outward, noral looks inward. Maybe. Maybe. I mean that's true as far as their own psychology is concerned. That is, looking inward towards the self versus outward towards other people. I would almost apply the inward and outward in a different kind of way that is... I mean, and this is going to sound like a, a really dumb oversimplification of it, but... Mr. Norrell is an indoors sort of magician, and Mr. Strange is an outdoors sort of magician, right? Um, but I hope that isn't, in fact, a really silly twisting of what you're saying. There is <coughs> um, reading and careful thought and and perfectionist planning for Mr. Norrell. Um, go out there and discover for Jonathan. Um... And I see actually the indoor and outdoor thing to be a sort of an extension, in a sense of that. Um, yeah, Jordan Sunderland says Strange has a wanderlust and Norrell is a homebody. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and of course this does map at least potentially map onto the sort of uh, the theoretical and practical magician divide that we've seen before. I mean, we talked back, I think, in class number one about how, in a sense, Mr. Norrell seemed to be just sort of like the ultimate, the perfected theoretical magician, right? Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Chris Swank says, Token Baggins. Chris Swank again, attempting to uh, uh, divert me into uh, Tolkienian categories uh, for another class. I shall not be drawn. (laughs) No, no, because that never works. Um, One other thing I would point to here in that last paragraph that I find interesting. His feet would carry him there on his own accord. Is there a hint here that there is some inherent element? Uh, Not inherently, malevolent, I hope. Uh, But, though speaking of malevolence, Remember the Lawrence Strange story? Remember our discussion of how the rather peculiar way in which we're introduced to Jonathan Strange um, back in this um, uh, back in, in, in the very first time, not the first time he's referred to, of course, which happens in the footnote of page one. Um, but um, uh, but the um, story with his father. Right, and Jeremy Johns, and that, that, that we remember, we talked about how fairy tale like that was. Right, Jeremy Johns is Jack the Giant Killer, and um, and the whole like being sent down the briar path with the with the remember the way in which the the briars are ripping at Jeremy Johns, which sounds a lot like the way the brooms beat the Willis's servant uh, in the King's house. Remember this. Um, and it's the fairy gentleman, the gentleman with with the thistle down hair, who arranges the beating um, of uh, the Willis's servant. Um, the more we read, the more it sounds like that could have been fairy magic involved uh, in that whole sequence, in that whole scene. And again, all we know is like this is this is the context of Jonathan Strange, right? This is Jonathan Strange's inheritance. This is his birthright. Um, Is that his his you know there seems to be something odd and almost uh, almost fairy like in a rather unflattering way um, about his own father right so again the 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 question about um, whether or not there's some intrinsic connection with Jonathan you know his own his feet naturally want to go that way Um, anyway that's one thing that kind of jumped out to me which of course then would lead me to then jump recklessly to the next question, which is, is there a sense in which Jonathan Strange is the true heir to English magic? Um, let's keep thinking about that for a second. Oh, interesting, yeah, Corita was just okay, well, I don't know if you're saying exactly the same thing as I am, Karita, but Carita says, the impulsive Mr. Strange has a touch more of the air of destiny about him than does thoughtful, control freak Mr. Norrell. Um, yeah, Why does Jonathan Strange become a magician? Because Vinculus tells him he's a magician, right? Whereas Mr. Norrell hears Vinculus's prophecy and says, "Every mountebank can spout prophecies that claim to be from the Raven King. I'll have none. I have nothing to do with you, right?" Um, Jonathan hears the prophecy of the Raven King and says, "Okay." Raven King, sir. Not even explicitly, right? Not even overtly. He doesn't say, like, well, I believe he's the prophet of the Raven King, and I will do anything the Raven King says. So It's not like that, right? But he just, he perceives it and does it, right? Um, he acts in at least implicit compliance with the Raven King's magic, right? Or the Raven King's prophecy. Um so yeah there does seem to be a way a uh, uh, career of destiny i think is good remember even the um the cards right uh the the way that Jonathan Strange is depicted in that moment when he's going to become a magician um when he's going to be receiving the message of vinculus uh so yeah I, I mean i think that we can we can see uh, uh, sort of jonathan's destiny in that way um, look at his reaction to actually going through the mirror that he's only thinking about doing here when he lets when he uh, 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 you know, I was gonna do a weird mixed metaphor about uh, you know <laughs> letting his feet go and go where they want to go. but i was I was gonna use a I was gonna use a horse riding metaphor, but then I realized that uh, to say metaphorically, to give your feet their head, Is just super confusing, so forget it. Um, Anyway, you know what I'm talking about. When he goes through the mirror, what happens? "'But you have not said anything about this kingdom, path, whatever it is, behind the mirror,' said Colonel Grant. "'Did it answer your expectations?' Strange shook his head. "'I do not have words to describe it. "'All that Norrell and I have done is as nothing in comparison. "'And yet we have the audacity to call ourselves magicians.' i wish i could give you an idea of its grandeur of its size and complexity of the great stone halls that lead off in every direction i tried at first to judge their length and number but soon gave up there seemed no end to them there were canals of still water and stone embankments the water appeared black in the gloomy light I saw staircases that rose up so high I could not see the top of them, and others that descended into utter blackness. Then suddenly I passed under an arch and found myself upon a stone bridge that crossed a dark, empty landscape. The bridge was so vast that I could not see the end of it. Imagine a bridge that joined Islington to Twickenham, or York to Newcastle, and everywhere in the halls and on the bridge I saw his likeness." At first, when Strange says, all that Norrell and I have done is as nothing in comparison, I thought he was merely sort of being betrayed by his excitement into making an unconsciously, enormously arrogant statement. At first, I thought he only meant what I have just accomplished through my magic is makes everything that Norrell and I have done like nothing compared to what I just did, right? I thought he was saying, like, boy, have I made the leap, right but of course it immediately becomes clear that that's not what he means right what's he, what's he on about right he says we have the audacity to call ourselves magicians he's obviously not praising himself right what has happened what is the experience for strange what is important to strange about his traveling the king's roads his encounter this direct personal encounter with the magic of John Ustglas, right? Um, yeah, I am mean, John Malene, you're right, it is an accomplishment to get into the King's Roads. Nobody has walked the King's Roads since the Orient magicians. It's absolutely true. But um, yeah, Donna, Smith says there's more to magic than what's in Norrell's books. He certainly does show that. Um, and how much more, right? Oh, my goodness. What he's emphasizing, right? What he's saying, like, the work of magic compared with which everything we've done is like, you know, absolutely nothing. right? I mean, it's ridiculous that we would even call ourselves magicians if we are following in the footsteps of somebody not who walked these paths like the other Orient magicians, but who made these paths. This whole Thing that he's describing, these are the King's Roads. I might be wrong about this, but I don't think so. Um, that is to say, it might just be that he's experiencing fairy. That he's gone. He's gone to fairy, and fairy is where he is. But I don't think that that's the case. I think it's this place that he goes to. The King's Roads were made by Janus Goss's magic. And he's describing that like it's not just like a path; it's the incredible size and complexity, of the great stone halls, and uh, the entire network of paths. And this—it's—it's it's, it's a, it's a whole—it's a whole world that Jonosklos has made, which presumably connect many, many places. Like, would it enable you to travel from anywhere to anywhere. Um, the idea of a magician who would be able to make such a thing and it still works hundreds of years later, right? I mean Yikes. Right. Um he has uh um Yeah, see but but I think it's still it's not just um yeah, Brian Dimick says that Strange would surely have known this intellectually before, but only now that he's seen them does he have this reaction. <sighs> yes, yeah. No, notice how how he emphasizes the grandeur of the place, right? Knowing that it's one thing to say, um, it's one thing to say, John O'Skowas establish roads between you know geographically disparate places in England and between England and fairy and England and hell and you know to say that he forged those trails you know if you think of him as merely a trailblazer right he found the way that's pretty impressive all by itself right and clearly strange had given him at least, you know that much credit right that's what seemed to be sort of how he understood the king's roads but when he goes there he realizes again. This is not just. It's not just that he's found the path. It's not just that he's walked the path. It's that he has made this world. I mean, this whole huge realm that is just constructed stably out of John Oskar's magic. That seems. That's what he keeps emphasizing in this paragraph um, about the the depth and the breadth and and. Pe- so again, it's not just that he's walked these roads before. He made these roads, and th- and they're still in use, right? Not only does Jonathan walk them, somebody else is walking them. Probably a fairy. Um, it's um. It's amazing. You know, John Moline says, "Would he have seen these? Uh, would he have seen uh, books describing the roads?" Um, well, I, I agree with you, John. Norrell would certainly have hidden those books if they are described uh, in the books, but. Um, but it's not clear that it would have been described. Um, remember how the footnotes continue to tell us how deplorably second-hand all of our information about John magic is. Right, Of the, uh, the Oriates, the other magicians uh, of the time of John Oskos, not to mention John himself generally didn't write down what they did or describe anything, right? Most of what we have are the books by the, by the Argentine magicians who are recalling and recycling for us you know, just, just spouting what they can remember or what they have, the bits that they have pieced together about what the Oriates did, right? So it's not at all clear that any of the Oriates would have left a description of what this place was really like. Um, I'd be pretty surprised if there were a book describing this clearly, uh, even in Mr. Norrell's library. Um, so what about Jonathan Strange's desire to uh, explore, right? To be an explorer. Is he being merely foolhardy? Well, There's an open debate about this, right? Arabella, Sir Walter Pole. Um, Colonel Grant, right? Everybody, you know, they all sort of, they, they, they don't, you know, Strange himself, they don't see eye to eye on this question, right? Is it a good idea for him to explore? Um, Arabella says it's not safe. Strange doesn't disagree. He just doesn't care, right? Well, let's go on and think more about John Esquilas, because again, in order to be able to answer this question... Would it be foolhardy to go on the king's roads? Well, it would be good to know a little bit more about Jonas Gloss, right? And we know what makes it so obvious that this was done by Jonas Gloss. It's got his it's got his name all over it, right? Um, got his image all over it. Um, so, but what about Jonas? Can you, can you trust the guy, Jonas Glass Right. Uh, this from his review, the scandalous review uh, in uh, in in the Edinburgh, which um, in which he stabs Nora in the back. Often it is difficult to decide upon the morality of Usglas' actions, because his motives are so obscure. It would be hard to tell if his uh, purposes were inherently malevolent, wouldn't it? Of all the orient magicians, he is the most mysterious. No one, by the way, the capitalizations through this is classic 18th-19th century uh, uh, newsprint um, reviews and 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 magazines of this kind uh, tended to have those these uh, uh, both proper nouns and sort of particularly important. Um, uh, words or, 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 or common nouns are often capital, put in all caps like that, so that, it w- so that when you skim over the page, one thing um, which any modern person would notice um, if you pick up a, a copy of the Gentleman's Magazine or a facsimile of the Gentleman's Magazine or, 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 or the Edinburgh Review, any of these contemporary publications uh, you know, some newspapers, that kind of thing the print is tiny and the page is dense with it. Uh, paper was more expensive. Um, so they... Um, uh, the, I mean... And very few pictures. Um, so... If you're looking at a page of the Edinburgh Review, um, you're looking at multi-columns of really dense space with very little margin and very little picture... So the, um, the way that the, the printers sort of mitigated this effect um, for their readers was to make it easy to skim. Um, and, and, and it's kind of fun to skim, right? Usglas, Orient, uh, Lucifer, Usglas, <laughs> Martin Pale. Um, that's what you get when you scan this really quickly and just let the all-caps words jump out at you, right? Um, that's the purpose. Anyway, sorry. Uh, Okay, of all the Orient magicians, he is the most mysterious. No one knows why, in 1138, he caused the moon to disappear from the sky and made it travel through all the lakes and rivers of England. We might have a theory about this, actually. Um, We do not know why, in 1202, he quarreled with winter and banished it from his kingdom, so that for four years, northern England enjoyed continual summer. Nor do we know why for thirty consecutive nights in May and June of 1345 every man, woman, and child in the kingdom dreamt that they had been gathered together upon a dark red plain beneath a pale golden sky to build a tall black tower. Each night they labored, waking in the morning with their own, in their own beds completely exhausted. The dream only ceased to trouble them when, on the thirtieth night, the tower and its fortifications were completed. In all these stories, but particularly in the last... We have a sense of great events going on, but what they might be we cannot tell. Several scholars have speculated that the tall black tower was situated in that part of Hell which Usglas was reputed to lease from Lucifer, and that Usglas was building a fortress in order to prosecute a war against his enemies in Hell. However, Martin Pale thought otherwise. He believed that there was a connection between the construction of the tower and the appearance in England three years later of the Black Death. John Usklass's kingdom of northern england suffered a good deal less from the disease than its southern neighbor and pale believed that this was because usklass had constructed some sort of defense against it okay um this is remember this is the guy who you you can't accuse john usklass of black magic because he's the guy who wrote the laws about it right um but the um uncertainty that is the uncertainty of how to evaluate this, right? The whole point that that Jonathan Strange is making here is that Usgos' actions are fundamentally inscrutable because we don't know his purposes, right? We don't have the context for what Usquas was doing, and so we can't understand any of these things. This is the problem in the post Orient world, right? Because we don't have enough information. Um, this means Strange could be right, Arabella could be right. We can see, you can see by the way this is written, that Strange inclines to agree with Pale, right? He puts Pale's much more positive theory that in fact he wasn't just, uh, you know, pressing all of his subjects into service. And notice the similarity we have seen instances of fairy abduction, right? Uh, uh, so this whole, the, we had these really vivid dreams, right? No, they didn't have vivid dreams. They've been abducted. They've been taken into fairy by night, just like Lady Pole, just like Stephen Black, right? Who wake up in the morning uh, as if they've had a dream and yet their bodies are exhausted from all the dancing they've been doing all night, right? The experience of, that's recorded here is exactly the same as what we've already seen in the contemporary story right? So, from our vantage point, it seems pretty clear, okay, we st- it's not still not clear to us why he did it or what he was accomplishing, but it's clear what he did, right? Which just transport them to fairy, tell, adjacent to hell, wherever it is, right? But why? If he was pressing them, compelling them all into forced labor to build a pleasure home for himself, or even a defensive fortification for a war that's going on in a different kingdom of his, that doesn't sound very good. Right? If it's a bulwark against the Black Death, it sounds much better. Right? Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> karita Alexander says, Transparency and accountability in the government seem not to be expected during the reign of the Raven King. Congratulations, Carina. You are nominated for Understatement of the Day. Absolutely. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, now, think for a second about what we know of the fairy gentleman. Right? Um, about the gentleman with the thistledown hair, um, on the question of inscrutability of motives. Um, that might seem like a questionable parallel to draw, but we'll come back to it. Um, let's look at um, let's look at the fairy gentleman and Jonathan Strange and their, in their, sort of their relationship. Uh, and interactions, um, and here I want to return finally to the scene that we didn't get to last time, which is the madness cure. Jonathan Strange's attempt to cure the madness of the king. First, let's look at the spell. In the past few days, he had searched Norrell's books for something pertinent to the king's condition. There were remarkably few spells for curing madness. Indeed, he had found only one, and even then he was not sure of what, that that was what it was meant for. It was a prescription in, Orm, uh, in, in, Orm, in Ormskirk's Revelations of Thirty-Six Other Worlds. Ormskirk said that it would dispel illusions and correct wrong ideas. Strange took out the book, and read through the spell again. It was a peculiarly obscure piece of magic, consisting only of the following words. Now, first, one thing I would notice, this is not a spell to cure madness. Right? That's how he's applying it, right? He's applying this as a, as a madness cure. Um, by the way, does anybody get the highly obscure reference in my subtitle? Extra super bonus points if you get my reference in calling this slide The Madness Cure. Um, uh, uh, hint, it's a book we just recently read with my younger son. Um, okay, but so notice this is not a cure for madness. This is, in fact, uh, a, um, a spell to dispel illusions and correct wrong ideas. Okay. But um, uh, uh, Your time is up. The answer, The Madness Cure, my reference is to the great uh, stories of the magic of Mrs. Piggle Wiggle, whose every chapter is the something-or-other cure, uh, usually of some... Uh, uh, pattern of misbehavior among children. Anyway, place the moon at his eyes, and her whiteness shall devour the false sights the deceiver has placed there. Place a swarm of bees at his ears. Bees love truth, and will destroy the deceiver's lies. Place salt in his mouth, lest the deceiver attempt to delight him with the taste of honey, or disgust him with the taste of ashes. Nail his hand with an iron nail, so that he shall not raise it to do the deceiver's bidding place his heart in a secret place so that all his desires shall be his own, and the deceiver shall find no hold there. Memorandum. The color red may be found beneficial. Okay. Um, yes, John, I also was thinking of the devil uh, with, the ta- sp- with the... Speaking of the deceiver, right, just using the phrase the deceiver does sound uh, uh, like the devil, but um, but, of course, in context, it's clear that it's not merely the devil, right, that he's talking about. Um, it is the one who deceives. Again, the point of this spell is to dispel illusions and correct wrong ideas. Anyone who is implanting wrong ideas is, of course, the deceiver in question. Uh, but, John, I, I agree with that uh, sort of overtone uh, that, it seemed, uh, that it seemed there. Um, okay, so let's look at the application of this thing. But, again, is it secure for madness? Not a cure for madness, dispelling illusions and correcting wrong ideas. Um, before we look at Jonathan Strange's application of this, two things, um, two passages leading up to that, which seem to me particularly interesting and important. One is in this uh, 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 conversation with the Willises after they arrive about their uh, approach to healing madness, right? The Willises, of course, none of the Oriates seemed to care much about curing madness, but the Willises are the experts, right? They're the professionals about curing madness, and, uh, and they're the ones who are in charge of the king, of course, the sort of wicked, sadistic people of inherently malevolent uh, purpose who are uh, doing such cruel things to the king. But in the end, added Dr. John, it is by the imposition of his will upon the patient that the doctor effects his cure. It is the forcefulness of the doctor's own character which determines his success or failure. It was observed by many people that our father could subdue lunatics merely by fixing them with his eye. Really? said Strange, becoming interested in spite of himself. I had never thought of it before, but something of the sort is certainly true of magic. There are all sorts of occasions when the success of a piece of magic depends upon the forcefulness of a magician's character. Um. Okay, so couple things. that We see a c- couple reasons that I brought this up. First, on the one hand, um, it's interesting because it sheds light on the sort of... Well, okay. Three things. Three things. First, it sheds light on the process of magic. right? It tells us a little bit more about how magic works. Um, that it does depend upon the will of the magicianing. It's not just like a series of words or actions or things which could be done perhaps accidentally and yet produce a magical effect, right? Uh, it seems at least some um elements of magic are dependent upon uh, are dependent upon the will of the person involved. This of course also then comes back around interestingly to the question to the question of black magic that we started with tonight. It's about the will of the magician, right? What is the purpose of the magician if your purpose is inherently malevolent? then you've got a problem, right? or rather than you are a problem. Um, so so again, the fact that he connects it to will seems, uh, seems important. Um, uh, Michael Cheskowski points out that magicians of course are more respectable than, phys- than physicians. Certainly true. At least if you judge by Mr. Norrell's house, it's certainly true. Um, but of course, notice Michael, as you point out, sort of the irony here right? of uh, you've got the magician and the physician's both of whom are trying to treat the king, right? Um, But, of course, there's not only the sort of professional or sort of societal hierarchy, at least Mr. Norrell considers it a social hierarchy between magicians and physicians, but there's also a moral one, right? Again, the Willises are clearly malevolent in their purposes. They're awful. And the the mere fact that Jonathan kind of pauses and is like, oh, yeah, I totally get that. I totally get you, right? Um... It's not that he, you couldn't say he's formed a temporary alliance with the Willises, but uh, um, he's, uh, um, anyway, I I, I find that his sort of distraction here, and uh, uh, kind of getting into it, like, oh yeah, actually, I relate to the way that you're, there's a cast, I think, anyway, at least a little bit of doubt. Um, on, uh, <clears throat> on Strange. His, the similarity of his... The, the confessed similarity of his methods uh, to the Willises uh, is perhaps at least a little bit um, dubious. Yeah, uh, and uh, uh, Jeannie Minnick points out the, uh, the gentleman with the thistledown hair's forcefulness of will and how he asserts his will over people. Um, yes. Yes, exactly. And of course that becomes the question it is, plainly, the gentleman with the thistledown hair who is going to play the role of the deceiver, in this instance. Who is going to be, what was the phrase again? Uh, perpetrating an illusion, or you know promulgating a wrong idea uh, in the mind of the king, but not only the king, of Jonathan Strange. Um, here's the music that he... "'Jonathan Strange and the king are hearing. "'Ah, listen, oh, listen,' cried the king, spinning round. "'He is playing for you now. "'That harsh melody is for your wicked tutor, "'who will not teach you what you have every right to learn. "'Those discordant notes describe your anger "'at being prevented from making new discoveries. "'That slow, sad march is for the great library. "'He is too selfish to show you.' "'How in the world!' began Strange and then stopped. "'He heard it, too.' "'the music that described his whole life. "'He realized for the first time "'how full of sadness his existence was. "'He was surrounded by mean-spirited men and women "'who hated him and were secretly jealous of his talent. "'He knew now that every angry thought he had ever had was justified "'and that every generous thought was misplaced. "'His enemies were despicable and his friends were treacherous. "'Norrell, naturally, was worst of all, "'but even Arabella was weak and unworthy of his love.' Ah sighed his majesty so you have been betrayed too. Yes said strange sadly. They were facing the wood again. The lights among the trees tiny as they were conveyed to strange a strong idea of the house and its comforts. He could almost see the soft candlelight falling upon the comfortable chairs, the ancient hearths with cheerful fires blaze where cheerful fires blazed, the glasses of hot spiced wine which would be provided to warm them after their long walk through the dark wood. The light suggested other ideas, too. I think there is a library, he said. Wrong ideas. Right? Um, is, that, is, that, is that what this is? Now, Curita says a clever devil speaks in twisted truths. Certainly so. Um, what is the purpose this is the gentleman with the thistledown hair who is doing this magic, right? This is his magic. This is his house that they are seeing. He is extending an invitation to his house to these people. He seems to be sympathetic with them. Is not he sympathetic in a very similar way to Stephen Black, right? Um, encouraging Stephen to despise uh, his wicked enemies... Right? Uh, <laughs> okay, true. Brian Dimmick says, I seriously doubt there's a library, given the man with the, with this Thistledown hair's attitude towards books. True enough, true enough. Uh, though Brian, in his defense, that was only uh, 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 Strange's conclusion. He just sees the candlelights. Uh, that seemed to be sort of wishful thinking on Strange's part, that there's a library there. Um... What is his motivation? The gentleman's motivation. Is he kindly disposed towards Strange and the king? I, again, didn't quote everything. Here's just two parts of Strange's use of that spell. And keep in mind, the spell um, from Ormskirk Neither Armskirk himself nor the magician that he's quoting understood it, right? They're just recycling bits of things that they've, they've got. They don't know. They, 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 they've heard these things from the Orients. They've gotten these things from the Orients, but they don't really understand them at all, right? Um, but everybody's so negative about the gentleman with thistle down hair, right? Kathy Yoder says he's intent on kidnapping them, using their weaknesses against them. Well, I can see why you would say that. Sarah LaGarde is concerned that he's trying to depose King George or put Stephen Black in his place as king. Well, he did say he wanted to do that. Um, uh, yeah, but... Are you sure? (laughs) We'll, We'll come back to this question. Um, Let's um, see, what, uh, see what happens here when this spell is actually used. Place the moon at my eyes, he thought, and her whiteness shall devour the false sights the deceiver has placed there. Now remember, Strange had no idea what this spell meant, right? Uh, that is, how would you do any of these things? Um, how, what's the answer? How do you do these things? How do you place the moon at your eyes? answer, by the force of your will. Right? Just like the Willis's might say. Um, he thinks this about the moon at his eyes, and it comes into effect. Right, The moon's scarred white disk appeared suddenly, not in the sky, but somewhere else. In the lakes and rivers of... In- no. No, sorry. That was John gloss. Um... If he had been obliged to say exactly where, he would have said it was inside his own head. The sensation was not a pleasant one. All he could think of, all he could see, was the moon's face, like a sliver of ancient bone. He forgot about the king. He forgot he was a magician. He forgot Mr. Norrell. He forgot his own name. He forgot everything except the moon. The moon vanished. Strange looked up and found himself in a snowy place, a little distance from a dark wood. Between him and the wood stood the blind king in his dressing-gown. The king must have walked on when he stopped, but without his guide to lean on, the king felt lost and afraid. He was crying out, Magician! Magician, where are you? The wood no longer struck strange as a welcoming place. It appeared to him now as it had at first, sinister, unknowable, un-English. As for the lights, he could barely see them. They were the merest pricks of white in the darkness, and suggested nothing except that the inhabitants of the house could not afford many candles. Remember what the moon was meant to do, according to the spell? Right? Place the moon at his eyes, and her whiteness shall devour the false sights the deceiver has placed there. Okay? First, we see it devouring everything, right? He forgets his own name, he forgets about the king, he forgets he's a magician, he forgets Mr. Norro, right? That is all of these. Th- remember, that's what he was being obsessed with his own life story, or at least the life story as it's being narrated to him within this, you know, by this music, by this fairy music. All of those things get expunged, and he is left instead looking around him there at the end and seeing things, well, if not as they are, at least as he saw them before. The way in which the magic of the fairy had been manipulating him has now been counteracted. And he now sees this as... I was going to... yeah, sinister. That's right, he uses the word sinister. He sees it as sinister and unknowable. Unenglish, which is a terrible insult. Okay. My favorite one. Uh, First, notice my subtitle here. Anyway, Place my heart in a secret place so that all my desires shall be my own and the deceiver shall find no hold there. He pictured Arabella as he had seen her a thousand times, prettily dressed and seated in a drawing room among a crowd of people who were all laughing and talking. He gave her his heart. She took it and placed it quietly in the pocket of her gown. No one observed what she did. Remember, he later on gives her the king's heart, too. And she puts it in the same pocket. Um. Remember the prophecy? Fingulus' prophecy? The first shall bury his heart in a dark wood beneath the snow, he says. Hmm. Oh, so he's placed his heart in a secret place. The wood beneath the snow. Hmm. Okay. We'll have to come back to the... Uh, um, we'll have to come back to the prophecy, I think, later on. Michael Czyszkowski says, isn't the first noral? The first in one sense, isn't he? But... I think it switches around, actually. The first time the prophecy says the first and the second. It seems pretty clear we... Mr. Norrell is the first, and Mr. Strange is the second. But then when it says, the first shall bury his heart in a dark wood beneath the snow, that seems that's pretty clearly, as evidenced here, Mr. Strange. Um, perhaps he... Mr. Norrell is first in one sense, and Mr. Strange is first in a different sense? Um, anyway... Um, Yeah, exactly. Michael then points out the first is, uh, we'll keep company with thieves and murderers. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Draw a light in LaSalle's, right? So, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. The first is normal, clearly. Yep. Not convinced it always is, but, uh, anyway. Um, yeah, Philip exactly. Uh, Philip is of course recall or Philip Lord is recalling uh, Arabella wandering in the snowy dark wood that, yeah, yeah, and the um uh and the burial. You know, yeah, you know, mhm. Mm hmm. Yep, yep. Um Yeah. Anyway. We'll come back to it. We'll come back to it. He, here, placing his heart in a secret place, what transaction has Jonathan Strange just made? And how does this protect him from the fairy's magic? In short, what's going on here, exactly? That's the question, right? That's... We don't know what's going on here. Jonathan doesn't know what's going on here. He is doing this piece of magic that even the guy who wrote it down in the book that he was just reading doesn't know what it does or how it works, right? He just did something which had some effect. It's quite clear, right? But nobody knows exactly what was just happening and what was the fairy up to in the first place. Well, Remember about madmen and fairies, right? Let's, you know, remember what Norrell has to say about this. I'm not at all surprised that you could not help His Majesty, said Mr. Norrell. I do not believe that even the Orient magicians could cure madness. In fact, I am not sure that they tried. Remember that or- that Ormskirk spell is not against about curing madness. It's about de- deceiving. They seem to have considered madness in quite a different light. They held madmen in a sort of reverence and thought they knew things sane men did not things which might be useful to a magician. There are stories of both Ralph Stokesy and Catherine of Winchester consulting with madmen. But it was not only magicians, surely, said Strange. Fairies, too, had a strong interest in madmen. I am sure I remember reading that somewhere. Yes, indeed. Some of our most important writers have remarked upon the strong resemblance between madmen and fairies. Both are well known for talking without sense or connection. I dare say you noticed something of the sort with a king. But there are other similarities. See the implications here? Madmen. Those uh, poor insane people, right? It's sad when they speak without sense or connection, right? When they lose their touch with the real world. What is the implication... Of Norrell's words here about the orient magicians and fairies—at least of the orient magicians—why would they consult with people who were insane? Why would they do that? Presumably because they thought they, the insane people, had something to offer, right? You can also say, perhaps, without sense or connection. If you don't see the connection, right? I dare say you noticed something of the sort with the king. Yeah, yeah. He was speaking without sense or connection. Except we, the readers, saw the sense and connection. There was very little, some things, as far as we could tell, but most of what the king said was perfectly sensible to us and had connection, just connection with a thing that strange couldn't see, right? So maybe what is lacking, the you know what insanity is, what madness is, which the Oriates perceived and we do not, is a perception of something, the ability to see and make connections with things that most people can't see, right? Fairies too. Now, when Norall says that uh, uh, important writers have remarked upon the strong resemblance between madmen and fairies. I think he seems uh designing to uh you know insult fairies by saying so right um yeah, let's shove fairies over in the same category as madmen, but again it seems that the issue is in the case of fairies even more likely to be that the people listening to them don't perceive the connection they don't understand um Good, Janice Hopper would add that the insane make connections that might not occur to the sane. Not only are they perhaps perceiving things that the sane do not, as was obviously the case with the King and Jonathan Strange, right? And the question of whether they could perceive the gentleman with the down hair. Um, though we could tell plainly that it was he um, long before we heard it from his own mouth in the next chapter. Um, all these connections being made but they sound insane if you don't know what the connections are. And the same is true of fairies. So fairy actions might seem nonsensical. Might seem to lack connection. Might seem inscrutable. Because, but maybe, it might be because fairies are strange, fickle, capricious, and arbitrary. It might just be that we're not getting it. That we're not seeing the whole picture. Right? Like Jonah's Gloss. Right? and his spells, and his magic. Um, and of course, Nancy, exactly as you say, fairies can't seem to make much sense of humans, either. Absolutely. It is most peculiar, says the gentleman. He describes all the most important appearances of my race in this country. There are accounts of how we have intervi- this is He's talking about Strange's book, what Strange has been doing. There are accounts of how we have intervened in Britain's affairs for Britain's good and the greater glory of the inhabitants. He continually gives it as his opinion that nothing is so desirable as that the magicians of this age should immediately summon us up and beg for our assistance. Can you make anything of this, Stephen? I cannot. When I wished to bring the King of England to my house and show him all sorts of polite attentions, this same magician thwarted me. His behavior upon that occasion seemed calculated to insult me. "'But I think, sir,' said Stephen gently, "'that perhaps he did not quite understand "'who or what you were. "'Oh, who can tell what these Englishmen understand? "'Their minds are so peculiar. "'It is impossible to know what they are thinking. "'I fear you will find it so, Stephen, "'when you are their king.'" Notice how in both cases, with Strange and, or really with with King George, and with the gentleman, we the readers are being placed in a privileged position, right? We see both sides, in a sense, right? We can make sense of this. We can understand why Jonathan might, on the one hand, be speaking as if he were a big supporter of fairies and all in favor of the interaction between humans and fairies, and at the same time be desperately attempting to prevent the King of England from being taken off to a fairy house right? Um, we can understand, both because we can understand how this would fit within Jonathan Strange's worldview, and also how it fits with the limitations of his knowledge. He did not, as Stephen correctly intuits, did not understand what was going on, and who or what the gentleman was, right? He couldn't see him, he couldn't hear him, he didn't know what was happening, right? Um we also can make sense as I as I was pointing out of the apparently disconnected words of King George, right? Because we know. Because we see the big picture. So madness and fairies both are explicable this way? And maybe the disconnection between the fairies and the magicians, especially Jonathan Strange, is just a kind of misunderstanding, sort of a tragic misunderstanding we haven't tragically misunderstood the gentleman with the thistledown hair, have we? Right? I mean, obviously, that guy is bad news. Clearly bad news, right? Uh, uh, inherently malevolent purposes, right? I mean, for instance, here's a passage from well earlier, like two classes ago. Um, When they reached the house in Harley Street, the gentleman—this is, of course, Stephen—the gentleman took a most affectionate farewell of Stephen, urging him not to feel sad at this parting, and reminding him that they would meet again that very night at Lost Hope, when a most charming ceremony will be held in the belfry of the easternmost tower. It commemorates an occasion which happened, oh, five hundred years ago or so, when I cleverly contrived to capture the little children of my enemy, and we pushed them out of the belfry to their deaths." "'Tonight we will reenact this great triumph. "'We will dress straw dolls in the children's blood-stained clothes "'and fling them down upon the paving stones, "'and then we will sing and dance and rejoice over their destruction. "'And do you perform this ceremony every year, sir? "'I feel sure I would have remembered if I had seen it before. "'It is so very... striking.' "'I am glad you think so. "'I perform it whenever I think of it. "'Of course, it was a great deal more striking when we used real children.' Uh, "'I mean... Again, clearly, this guy is bad news, right? I mean, if there's any question over whether or not the magic of the gentleman with the thistledown hair is black magic or white magic, I mean, do we have to go further than this, right? The guy who used to throw real children, presumably abducted human children, out of the belfry... Just to commemorate the time when he threw the children of his enemy out of the belfry? I mean, that's really bad. That's really bad. Right? What a wicked person he is. How sharply disconnected from goodness and things is he? Right? know then said the gentleman putting on grave and important looks quite unlike his usual expression that we fairy fairy <clears throat> that we fairy spirits know something of the future often fate chooses us as her vessels for prophecy in the past we have lent our aid to christians to allow them to achieve great and noble destinies julius caesar alexander the great charlemagne william shakespeare john wesley and so forth but our knowledge but often our knowledge of things to come is misty and the gentleman gestured furiously as if he were brushing away thick cobwebs from in front of his face. Imperfect. Out of my dear love for you, Stephen, I have traced the smoke of burning cities and battlefields and prized dripping bloody guts out of dying men to discover your future. (laughs) thank you. You are indeed destined to be a king. "'I must say that I am not in the least surprised. "'I felt strongly from the first that you should be a king, "'and it was most unlikely that I should be wrong. "'But more than this, I believe I know which kingdom is to be yours. "'The smoke and guts and all the other signs state quite clearly "'that it is to be a kingdom where you have already been, "'a kingdom with which you are already closely connected.' Stephen waited. "'But do you not see?' cried the gentleman impatiently it must be England. I cannot tell you how delighted I was when I learnt this important news. What do we see about the gentleman with the thistle down here? As Sarah Lagarde, John Milleen, um Neo Ottenstein are all pointing out, the gentleman has a different morality um, he as John says assigns no value to human life but is that inherently malevolent? Uh, John Lale compares it to uh, you know us having no concern for the life of the ant we steps on we step on right We don't consider that wicked we don't consider it wicked to kill for instance mice minding their own business and just trying to live and let live, right, in our basements. How capricious and cruel we are. Um... yeah, by the way, yeah. Uh Tom Hillman says that including John Wesley in the list is priceless early uh, 19th century anti-methodist rhetoric. Yes, uh, we're very distrustful of the Methodists. And um yeah, so the this these the suggestion that John Wesley might have had fairy assistance is uh I agree that is uh, that is that is really funny. That is really priceless. Um The gentleman is delighted for Stephen Black, right? Holds Stephen Black in very high regard. And for very, very good reason, too. Why exactly does he hold Stephen Black in enormously high regard? For what excellent and unimpeachable quality does he hold he's. hot. Yeah, his hotness, chiefly. Beauty, right? Um, He's very attractive. Yeah, yeah, Nancy, John, Carita, absolutely. Um, His hotness. Um, That's his job, right? Uh, I love that I didn't quote it. I don't have it to read for you, but the passage um, in today's reading where uh, the two of them, Stephen Black and the gentleman, are sort of debating about um, what it would be like for Stephen to be king, right? And he's like, well, I imagine I'll have a great, a great number of duties, right? And uh, uh, the gentleman is plainly of the opinion that by showing himself to the people you know, for a few weeks, uh, this will thoroughly discharge his duties because just showing them his graceful appearance is, uh, is clearly this primary duty of the monarch, right? Um, Absolutely. yeah. You have stewards for the rest of it. Please. Um, s- does this make the gentleman shallow and capricious? According to us, right? Um, does it make him seem seem mad? I mean, doesn't it seem a little crazy? To be like, well, your chief qualification is that you are cute, right? You are very handsome, and therefore you deserve to be king. Boy, that's irrational. At least we think so, because we don't see the connection. Right? Um, Again, this... uh, uh, His... um, His... uh, uh, The dripping, bloody guts of dying men in which he is reading the portents of Stephen's future. The implication seems to be that he has actually killed these men for the sake of pulling out their guts to get, you know, so he's basically just telling Stephen, I killed a whole bunch of people so as to discern your future, right? Uh, The smoke of burning cities and battlefields, he might have just shown up at an opportune moment at the battlefields. Maybe. (laughs) He might also possibly uh, be more causally involved uh, in those battles. It seems possible. Um, uh, <laughs> James Lubach says he's reminded of uh, strange women lying in ponds just distributing swords as a basis for a system of government. Um, yeah, some things might seem really disconnected if seen from outside and without the proper context, right? Um, but if you have the proper context, it all makes it all makes perfect sense. Um, I'm still, in every four years, I I, I I I again become a fan of that. Uh, um, it was a bumper sticker works better as a T-shirt um, during a presidential campaign to uh, the uh, sort of the movement to bring back strange women lying in ponds distributing swords as a basis of a system of government uh, compared to uh, what we have. Um, but uh, anyway, it's it's again, all of these things about him. But again, and, and look at he's doing this for out of friendship, loyalty. Well, neither of those words fit real well on the gentleman, which, at first, would seem to lower him in our opinion, right? But maybe it's just because we're applying human terms to him. Um, Are we sure? Are we confident in rejecting him? Right? Um... As you can see, of course, I'm playing a certain amount of devil's advocate. I mean, the pushing kids out of the belfry thing, I'm not trying to say that that's not really horrible. It is really horrible. Um, but, um, uh, But one of the things that we see, one of the major themes that we can see throughout the stuff that we've talked about in this class is context, right? Mr. Norrell looked like a completely self-absorbed, self-aggrandizing miser, right? Until we got a glimpse of the heart that actually lay beneath it, right? In his generosity to Jonathan Strange. um, And his explanation for what seemed like the merely self-aggrandizing and peevish, um, you know, sort of desire to expunge the Raven King, right? Right? When we can see a whole picture, we can contextualize things very differently. We see that with madness, we see that with fairies, we see that with Jonathan Strange, right? Himself. Um... Yeah. Yeah. Um uh Jonathan Kingdon says, uh, he's accomplishing nothing more than making Stephen miserable. He's doing evil things and achieving evil results. Well, yes, I mean, that's true. But who's to say who's wrong? The gentleman or Stephen? Maybe it's Stephen's problem that he's not more appreciative, right? Uh, Yes, Creative Lady Pole is is miserable too, but maybe that's just her weakness, right? Remember when she was all like Miss, like, oh, those poor pitiful things who can only dance for a few hours, right? Well, now who's the poor pitiful thing, huh? Right? I mean, let's get some perspective on this, right? He does make hot peeper, people miserable, Karita. That's that is kind of like his job description, right? Hi, gentleman with with the thistle down hair, making hot people miserable for hundreds of years. Um, yes, but again, it might be their fault, right? Or you know, okay, 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 fine. I don't mean to blame the victims here, but what I'm saying is the fact that they don't enjoy and appreciate what. not he assumes they enjoy it. He believes, doesn't assume. He believes that they enjoy it from his point of view. They not only should be grateful, but there's they have every reason to delight in what he does for them. Right. The fact that they don't happen to share those perspectives. Right. Is not his fault. Is it? Um, yeah, Janice Hopper is with me here. She says, We absolutely cannot judge fairies by human standards, and that's what we're doing. Right now, again, I'm not trying to undermine our sympathy for Stephen Black or for Lady Pole. Right? Of course, we sympathize with them. Of course, we see from their human perspective um, that. Uh, from their human perspective, that they're they're suffering, right? And 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 what he's doing is, from their point of view, unequivocally evil. Just as from Jonathan Strain's point of view, that the, con the king was merely confirming his own irrationality, his own madness, by having this one-sided conversation with a person who isn't there, right? Maybe, maybe. Um, John, Kingdon is having none of it. He says it's completely his fault, gentlemen's fault, because his belief that they want these things is a product of his narcissism. Narcissism, yes, well... He projects his own desires onto them. Yes. But aren't we projecting our desires onto him? Right? Why should he care about the lives of the children that he throws out the belfry? Right? I mean, we do... But isn't that just projecting our desires onto Him, our, our own point of view upon Him? Surely that's not fair. right? Okay, all right, all right, one more passage here. It may be laid down as a general rule that if a man begins to sing, no one will take any notice of his song except his fellow human beings. This is true even if his song is surpassingly beautiful. Other men may be in raptures at his skill, but the rest of creation is by and large unmoved. Perhaps a cat or a dog may look at him. His horse, if it is an exceptionally intelligent beast, may pause in cropping the grass, but that is the extent of it. But when the fairy sang, the whole world listened to him. Stephen felt clouds pause in their passing. He felt sleeping hills shift and murmur. He felt cold mists dance. He understood for the first time that the world is not dumb at all but merely waiting for someone to speak to it in a language it understands. In the fairy song, the earth recognized the names by which it called itself. Stephen began to dream again. This time he dreamt that hills walked and the sky wept. Trees came and spoke to him, and told him their secrets, and also whether or not he might regard them as friends or enemies. Important destinies were hidden inside pebbles and crumpled leaves. He dreamt that everything in the world, stones and rivers, leaves and fire, had a purpose, which it was determined to carry out with the utmost rigor. But he also understood that it was possible sometimes to persuade things to a different purpose. Philip Lord says, It sounds like things a madman might say doesn't it, though, Philip? Remember Mr. Norrell's, in that passage, right after... Remember the one about how he was saying fairies are a lot like madmen? Right after where I stopped that passage, remember Norrell goes on to tell the story of the man who used to have conversations with that particular dining room chair, right, and used to get really upset if anyone would go to sit in it. Um, He cited this as as an example of madness. But then he said, but, of course, fairies, too, Often talk to inanimate things uh, and believe that animate thi- that inanimate things have a soul. Um, he, Mister Norrell, <clears throat> seemed to be kind of plus minus on the question as to whether or not the fairies were in fact insane to believe this. Like, do they have a point? All he says is that they believed it. Fairies believe it, and therefore act like madmen, or the madmen act like them. One or the other, right? Or both? Who knows? Um, But you're absolutely right, Philip, that what Stephen perceives in this moment is like what a madman would say. The fairy speaks to the earth in a language that it understands, and the earth recognizes the names by which it called itself. The fairy is in touch with nature. Right? Here's the uncomfortable thing. We want to condemn the gentleman with the thistle-down hair, and I'm not opposing that. I am not, for a minute, suggesting any kind of... I almost said absolute relativism, which is a silly thing to say. I am not suggesting any, any, any true relativism. Moral relativism. I'm not saying, well, murdering children is only wrong from one point of view, right? I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that. But, much as we may, and with perfect justice, deplore the things that the gentleman has done, and consider him an antagonist, we get evidence here. That, if there is anyone who has a wider perspective to and um, to see the connections among things, it seems likelier to be the gentleman than us, right What Stephen perceives here, yes, he and the gentleman see the world in different ways, which one of them calls the earth by the names that it calls itself, however, right um. That's a big deal. Right? And now notice that second paragraph. This time he dreamt that hills walked and the sky wept. Trees came and... Is he dreaming about things acting unnaturally? No. Not exactly. Right? Um trees came and spoke to him and told him their secrets and also whether or not he might regard them as friends or enemies. That is to say, the trees are describing their real natures to him. This is what we are really like. Important destinies were hidden inside pebbles and crumpled leaves. He dreamt that everything in the world had a purpose which it was determined to carry out, but he also understood that it was possible sometimes to persuade things to a different Purpose. Yeah, John, Melina, I agree with you. That sounds like a description of magic. Persuading things to a different purpose, sometimes and temporarily, right? Yes. Yes. Um, that sounds like exactly what magic is. Remember the question about how essential fairies and fairy magic are. If that's what magic is, then, yeah, apparently that's what fairies are able to do. Right? Because they know the names by which the Earth calls itself. Um, Michael Cheskowski has a wonderful uh, suggestion. He says, Clark should write a, a sequel. Uh, to this book, a a, a rewriting of this book from the fairy's perspective. That would be really interesting. Um, I don't know if that could be maintained for a book, certainly not a book this long. Um, I'd be interested in a short story along those lines, maybe. I don't know, but, um, but it's all about perspective, right? It's all about perspective. Um, I haven't fallen behind I'm closer to caught up than I was at the beginning of the class hooray look at that sixteen slides today Is that, that's like a an all-time high right uh uh for for this class so far anyway um uh the only slides I didn't get to are the ones about uh, Arabella at the end we'll uh we'll definitely uh we'll definitely look at that sixteen out of eighteen karita I was so close um the, my, my last two again were about Arabella and uh, uh, her new friend, the gentleman with with the thistle down hair, will we'll, uh, we'll, will 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 talk about that next time. It'll come up, I'm sure, in our next uh, in our next segment. Thank you, everybody. Thanks for joining me uh, and for bearing with me as I uh, uh, was a little obstinate uh, in some of my analysis here tonight. Again, I'm just trying to just 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 making an argument. Um, not because I'm actually trying to change your mind what to what to think about the gentleman. I'm not saying you should like him. Um, but I do think that those are very much the questions that this book is inviting us to entertain uh, and to at least kind of wonder about. Anyway, thanks everybody. Good night. See you guys next week. Bye now.